0: I would like us to start out with in a place of expectation. Let's don't think about oh, let's wait for the sermon to get over and then we'll get to the invitation and then we'll get into a place of expectation. Let's start out in a place of expectation. I believe that God wants to remove some things that have that have been heavy baggage and weights that were not our burdens to carry, and I believe He wants to equip and enable us with some new understandings. And so, two scriptures that I want to start off with First, where Jesus said, "Come to me, Matthew 11:28, "All who are weary and heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and for you my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we move forward, I just want you to think about and, and be willing to identify any areas that are heavy or there's areas of your life that are not light. One of the ways that we miss out on God's blessings and his mysteries is to, is to wrongly perceive or, or see them as being for one thing, like for, for our spiritual condition so that we go to one place when we die. Second thing, John 10, 9, and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. We're on this... Thought process, this theme, if you will, this word from God about stewarding abundance. And God has already given us abundance. It's not about creating abundance. It's about stewarding what he has already initiated and created. If you look around this room, there's abundance in this room because all of you are here. So every time we get together, God has something that he wants to do for, through, and to each of us. And, And stewarding abundance is about having a mindset. It's not about giving. It's about living. And a picture of what abundance is there's a really good picture of when the disciples, when the Lord fed the multitudes on the side of, the, of the, on the mountain. And it happened twice. And in one of the accounts, Jesus had to instruct the disciples to pick up the fragments at the end. What is abundance? It's a collection of fragments. If you, if you have a lot of money, what is money? It's, it's a lot of small bills. If you have a lot of love, what is that? It's, it's a lot of deposits of love and encouragement. If you have peace— the I could go on and on. We, I really thought we were going to just be in worship the whole morning this morning. It was just amazing. But I believe that God wants to help us understand even more and walk in this, this mystery of stewarding abundance and being free of yokes and burdens that were not placed on us by him. So I, I remember seeing this cartoon as a kid. And since then, I've seen it as an adult. So it's all jumbled in my mind. I don't know. Who, or who originated it, but there was this cartoon strip called Hagar the Horrible when I was a kid. And it was this Viking uh, king, and he was kind of a buffoon, and he would go out and you know, try to be a, uh, a conqueror or whatnot, and he would always you know, put his foot in his mouth and, and, and trip over himself. And there's this, one, there's this one illustration where he's going out to fight a battle and he's got his swords, and then there's a, a salesman at the door knocking to sell him a machine gun, and he's like, I don't have time for that, I've gotta go fight a war. And he's going off, you know, with his, his, his sword. And, and so in the business world, they use that as an illustration. You can call it the ignorant customer or the unfortunate salesman. And it's real tempting as a salesman to look like the customer is ignorant and, and not think about, well, how could you be a better salesman? But in God's case, I, would, I don't think anybody would say that, that God is the unprepared or the unfortunate salesman. We're often like Hagar the Horrible. We're out there trying to fight our battles and do things in our own strength with our limited weapons and he's trying to give us a word, an answer, a resource from heaven, but we, we, we don't have time for that. We've, it's like trying to get to California. This is, is one of my favorite examples that I've heard from somebody else. But you've got a family who's struggling, and they're like, Pastor, we've got to get to California. We've got to get to California. And he's like, well, here, take an airline ticket. I, we don't have time to come pick that up. You don't understand. We've got to get to California. We're on our way. It's going to take us a long time to walk there. He's like, well, just take a plane ticket and fly there. You can be there in a few hours. No, you don't understand, Pastor. We've got to walk to California. We've got to get there. We can do that in a lot of different ways. And so I had a really cool experience this week. I had a, a customer that I had started calling on about three years ago. I met him through a referral from somebody else and, and connected with him on LinkedIn. And at the time, he was working in Japan. So I didn't realize it, but I'm corresponding with this guy in Japan thinking it's somebody you know locally that I'm going to get to talk to but he was on a project, he came back, long story short, it took three years to finally get the demo set up. So we've been talking and talking and talking and, and corresponding and referring one another and you know, and really building a relationship, got to meet a couple of times in person. But I had this one solution that I wanted to introduce to him and we finally got to demonstrate it this week. And it was so funny because when we got done, he came up to me and he goes, I'll be honest with you. He said, I really didn't want to like this. He said, you've messed me up. Now I've got to go change everything I'm doing and, and make a long story short, he's, he's got to change directions because I, I showed him that machine gun that he was looking for and he'd been fighting with a sword. And I believe that that's what God wants to do with us. And so the good news is, is God is persistent, like a persistent salesman. He's not selling us something so that he can benefit from our, you know, sales is often thought of as like someone's going to win and someone's going to lose, and a salesman always wants you to pay the highest price so that you're at, you know, on the losing end. That's not, that's not God's kingdom. God's about win-win scenarios, but God pursues us with truth and with revelation and with ideas, and we can unknowingly be fighting a war with the wrong tools and in the, in the wrong way and losing the battle or not having the victory that God would have for us. Last week in my message, I, I mentioned a term called semantic satiation. And only one of you corrected me that I'm it, my mispronunciation. I'm just teasing. I'm saying don't be afraid to correct. If something's said incorrectly, I want to know. It was, it's technically pronounced semantic satiation. And the person that corrected me was actually my mom. See, I grew up in a grammatically correct family. Some people grew up in politically correct families. I grew up in a grammatically correct family. <laughs> And she was very gentle about it. And she said, I think it's satiation. And I was like, you're right. It's satiation, not satiation. Either way, it sounds weird because it's not a word that we use a lot in our common everyday language. But the reason why I thought it was satiation is because the concept means to satisfy some, someone with something or to provide more than enough. So you can get satisfied or saturated with the wrong ideas and incomplete ideas and think that you've got all that you need and really you're missing out. And so she asked me if I remembered the first time that we talked about it. And as soon as she started the conversation, I remembered. And it was over the word much. Now, my mom didn't know the term semantic satiation. And if you don't remember what it is, or you weren't here, it's a term that they figured out in the 60s and 70s. Psychologists figured out that there's this phenomenon in the human brain that if you say a simple term over and over and over again, you can enter this like limited period of like, it doesn't make sense. Like, you lose the ability to understand what the word is. And so I remember this. Me and my mom were sitting there going, much, 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 much. And the funny thing about that word, much, is you say it long enough, and after a while, it just doesn't mean much. I thought that was, I was like, wow, that's an interesting play on words. But frequency can lead to familiarity. And when you become too familiar with something, it loses value to you. And if you think about what do we do with things that don't have value to us? We throw them away. Trash doesn't have value to us. That's why we get rid of it. We don't protect it or invest it or promote what doesn't mean much to us. What I was trying to share last week is that God wants to help us get rid of concepts or wrong ideas that would deceive us into thinking that we know something that we don't or having a wrong feeling about something because of the way that we understand words that are often used in God's kingdom. I messed up on one other thing, and nobody corrected me on this. But I said, I was using an example of when God spoke from heaven and that there were three different interpretations of what was said. I said it was when Jesus was baptized. It wasn't. It was when Jesus prayed in front of the disciples and he said, Lord, Father, glorify yourself. God speaks from heaven and he says, I have glorified myself and I will do it again. And there were three different interpretations of what was said. One group of people heard thunder, just noise. Another group of people heard spiritual activity. It's something supernatural, but it doesn't involve me. And then the third group heard what was actually said. The problem wasn't on the sender of the information. It was on the recipients of the information. And so I hate it when I get things wrong, and I always want to have a chance to correct them. But it's an interesting example, because one of the ways the enemy attacks us is he, he gets us to believe that if God would only speak louder, then we would get the message. And that's the perfect example that that's not true. He spoke audibly for everybody to have an equal opportunity to hear what he was saying. But yet there were still three interpretations of what was actually said. So I want to attack a few things today. I want to attack a rival theology, works, the mysteriousness of God. I want to make some deposits with the word gospel, kingdom, stewardship, and abundance. I've already talked about abundance and I've already talked a little bit about stewarding. But stewarding is how we participate in his plan. It's how we get our little into his hands so that he can bless and multiply. I already said it's not about giving, but living. Lena established that in her message. Abundance. One other point that I wanted to make about it. We see the illustration with the fishes and the loaves. But there's another aspect when you see someone who's an expert or a master of something, you see an abundance of skill being demonstrated. But what they're really demonstrating is a bunch of little lessons, an abundance of little lessons that have been combined. And, and, and so instruction has become flesh and is now revelation in their life. So what's encouraging and exciting about that is to know that each of us has a calling and an opportunity and a purpose to... Walk in your own unique abundance. We're all called to steward abundance. There's specific abundance and then there's general abundance. None of us needs to feel less than or intimidated by anybody else. No one needs to feel compared or contrasted with anybody else. The way that Lena MCs the meeting, you don't need to feel like you need to learn how to do that. But what you should learn and take away from that is the willingness and the ability God has for you to be in tune with His Spirit at all times. And to be willing to step up and say, what do you feel like he's saying in any given moment? None of us has to mimic each other, but we can imitate. I think I'm using those words properly, if not, correct me later. But arrival theology says that our biggest problem is where we're going. The kingdom is about where you are and who you are and what you're doing. Arrival theology is insidious. It affects every area of our thinking and our faith. It creeps into our hearts. It's like mold growing behind the walls of a beautiful home. It changes the focus from a daily estimation, that's an, an assessment of what's going on, a continuous reevaluation, to a post-mortem destination. In other words, somewhere you go, go after you die. It subtly tells you that you're waiting on something to change that is outside of your control, and therefore you're a victim until it changes. It deceives you into waiting and delaying for something that's already been willed to you and delivered to you. The secret to dealing with it is to first expose it identify it, call it out for what it is, and then to break agreement with your words, and then to begin speaking in agreement with what God says about who you are and every aspect of your life. In other words, submit yourself to God, and then the enemy will flee from you. Okay, well, if you interpret that through a rival theology, you do that one time. Everything becomes a one-time event. I believe in Jesus, so now I'm good. I'm, I'm forgiven, so now I'm good. I submitted to God, so now the enemy's gonna just flee from me. Get out of here, I, I submitted to God. Well, submitting to God, submitting to authority is an ongoing process. The centurion blew Jesus's mind because he demonstrated faith that Jesus hadn't even seen in Israel. And Israel were the ones that should have had the most faith out of anybody on the planet. But the centurion knew that I have authority by submitting to authority. So arrival theology, one way you can start to get sensitive to it, anything that just always looks like you're waiting on, you're just waiting on God, waiting on God. Think about the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem. Kenneth Hagin was the first one to point this out. He said, if you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by being in a certain place, then you've got to go wait in the same place and do exactly the same thing as what the disciples were told to do. Stewardship is not a religious task, and it's not about how self-disciplined we can be. It's not to put burdens on you. It's not to, to make you try harder and be better. It's not about personal development. It's important to know the difference, because self-development is affected by, and it involves stewardship. How you steward your life and your time can affect your personal development. But the purpose of stewardship and the functionality and the revelation of it are much, 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 much bigger than personal development. Stewardship actually affects every aspect of your life. And it's about getting with God on things. With God, all things are possible. There's nothing impossible with God. So our the secret is to learn and know how to practice getting and being with God on things. If if when we say when somebody asks us a question you say I'm with you man. You're on the same page. You're saying I'm with you. That's when we get with God on ever on what does God say about this situation or this topic or this feeling or this perspective when we're with God then nothing is impossible. And and so it's, it's stewardship is not about us performing It's about us getting in line with what he's doing and then just beginning to flow. So last week I was talking about that God wants to help us not be intimidated by momentum or the lack of it in our lives. And so we can, sometimes we can be intimidated by negative momentum. We've been doing the wrong thing. We've got wrong, bad results in our lives. And, and sometimes we, can, we might have areas of our lives where there's no momentum. It just seems dead. And that can feel overwhelming. And then we can also be ignorant about how momentum gets established and, and is created. And so God wants to break off all those heavy burdens. The cool thing about God's kingdom is that momentum can be established very, very quickly. This week, I got to experience a little bit of that from my own message. And I was in a meeting with a, a, a couple of business associates, and the meeting, we were like we had about ten minutes left on our time, and we were coming to an end. And it was a really good meeting. It was a, it was a, an exciting kind of unscheduled meeting. And at the end, I I just felt this. I had this little thought, offer to pray for him. I was like, that's, not, that's <laughs> this is a business, you know, like, and and I had this feeling like you go through all those thoughts, oh, you're, you're being spiritual, or you're trying to spiritualize everything, you know, and then I had this thought, this is what you're preaching about. I was like, okay, God, and so they kind of got done talking, and I just said, can I say a prayer? You know, like, if you say it that way, like, nobody has, you know, like, it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, you can say a prayer, and I said, okay, once I got permission, I stood up, I said, I'm gonna lay hands on you, and, and I... <laughs> And I and I and I walked around the desk and I and I laid hands on, on one of the guys and and I felt the power of God so strong. I mean like just fire and anointing and heat and I didn't look at any of their, either of their faces and and after I got done I was like, man, that was that was awesome. But then I was like, I could have prayed even more boldly. Like I was like, I was like, okay, next time God I'll go for it even more. But when I got done praying, one of the guys had tears in his eyes. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And you know, I really hesitated to share that because it's not about, it's not about acting or performing or being good. It's just I experienced the word of God become flesh in me and create momentum within just a few days' time. Like I literally was sitting there and the Lord's like, that's what you're preaching about. That's stewarding. I've got so much. I said I'm messed up this morning because I've got, I've got when Angie gave her word and she read that scripture, I was actually looking up that same scripture at that time, and so I'm just going to share several of the things that God's put on my heart, and I'm going to ask him to weave it together. It's it's not our job to create things. It's our job to collect. So like the disciples, it, it wasn't their job to multiply the fish. He did that, but it was their job to convey it. And, and to deliver it. And then it was their job to pick it up at the end. What, it, they, what they had an abundance after they collected what he created. But it wouldn't have been an abundance if they hadn't observed that there was value and they had obeyed his instruction. So the cool thing about creating momentum and being a steward is that we're always, like I said last week, we're always responding to him. We don't have the burden of being the creator, we don't make the seed. And we don't make the seed produce. But there's something that happens between the seed coming into being and the seed producing is there's a a caretaking stage of planting that seed and caring for it. But then even after the seed is mature and there's a harvest, it doesn't benefit anybody until we collect it. And so you see this process of God originates, he creates seed, and then he says, here, steward my seed. We steward the seed, we water it, we protect it, He multiplies what we've responded to him with, and then we respond to what he's done, and it's just this continual response, give and take, give and take, responding to him and letting him do what only he can do. Now, one of the big points that I wanted to convey last week is that a lot of times we are satisfied with our knowledge of things, and sometimes we're saturated with a wrong idea, and we're even satisfied with our wrong saturation of what that means, and we can have these wrong ideas and press into God in wrong ways and be carrying around burdens that he never created us to, to bear. My mom got the idea, she she stumbled on that phenomena of semantic satiation, but she didn't know what the law was called. She didn't know what it was, she just knew that it was something that we kind of and we just thought it was like some kind of weird trick. You know, this was 30 something years ago. Turns out there's a term for it. Well, same thing in God's kingdom. We can bump into the phenomena of God, the the realities of his kingdom. But we don't really operate in a place of assurance and maturity and confidence in it. And sometimes God will put a specific anointing on someone's life just to put that characteristic on display. But again, it's not to elevate them and to push us down or to make us feel contrasted or compared against them. It's to show pictures of what's possible so that we can begin to say, yes, Lord, do that in me too. One wrong term that I am fascinated by is the word repentance. The word repentance, metanoeo, I'm I'm not a Greek scholar, I've got some, it's easy to learn things, you know, at a very surface level, but it, it means to change the way you think after being with. It doesn't mean just to change the way you think. So if I come to you and just say, repent, repent, you better repent, well, that's a wrong way to teach and instruct, that's a wrong way to discipline children, you need to change the... You know, you tell somebody, don't do this, don't do that. Instead of telling them don't all the time, you need to share do. Scriptural biblical repentance can only happen after being with him and hearing him say. But a lot of times when you ask people their working definition of what the word repentance means, they will often explain or give you, they won't use this vocabulary word, but they'll describe the term penance. Does anybody in here know? The dictionary definition of the word penance. If I asked you to define it, could you win a trivia question with it? It means the voluntary self punishment inflicted as an outward expression of repentance for having done wrong. It's a religious term that came through denominational theology. Sometimes it's trying to describe what repentance looks like, but what it's done is it's been elevated to a place of virtue. So that we don't understand repentance anymore. We just walk around and we try to make ourselves right through penance. Think about people that, that would whip themselves. There are certain religions around the world, not even Christian religions, where people think that the way to get right and get spiritually pure is to sit there and beat themselves. So good news today. God wants to take, if you're carrying around any heavy burdens about anything that you've messed up on or done wrong, you're not going to get right by punishing yourself. That's not the gospel. It's already been taken care of for you. Again, if we don't know what repentance is, we can hear a vocabulary word and try to respond based on the ideas that are in our hearts and minds. And we can actually just end up in a pit and be frustrated and not have any life. And we walk around with those heavy burdens that were not put on us by God. Two words. Let's talk about gospel and kingdom. The word gospel, it means good news. This is from Strong's Greek Dictionary, The good news of the coming of the Messiah, the gospel, after it expresses, sometimes the giver, sometimes the subject, the gospel literally God's good news includes the entire Bible. It is not limited to how a person becomes a Christian. Now what's interesting about the word gospel is where where do the you know we use it as a term, oh, that's gospel. he's he's preaching the gospel, you know. And and there's a a few books in the Bible that we call the Gospels. Everybody should know what the Gospels are, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Hezekiah? No, Luke and John, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the word Gospel appears in the New Testament 76 times. How many of those times do you think that word appears in the Gospels? Twelve. Four in Matthew and eight in Mark. None in Luke or John. But how do the Gospels Be the Gospels without the word gospel in it. Gospel is good news. So when you hear the gospel of the kingdom, first thing you need to think, you need to get rid of this word that means nothing to you. and you need to think the good news of the kingdom, okay? Now, let's talk about kingdom. Kingdom, my favorite word, means government. So right off the bat, you should be able to say the good news of the government. The good news of the government is at hand. The good news of the government is here. Once the good news of the government is preached in all the world, then the end will come. This woman was healed because the government of God, the kingdom of heaven, fell on her. Have you, you might, some of older, more mature people in here might know the expression. There's this funny saying that some of the worst, the eight or nine worst words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And Ronald Reagan made it famous, but actually somebody said it before him. Ronald Reagan was this president that we had back in the early 80s, for those of you that don't know. (laughs) But it's a funny connotation because we have a lot of reasons to be uh, doubtful and and, um, wary, leery of our government. But we ought to have that mindset from a very pure perspective. I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. My father's government's here. It's It's inside me. You don't have peace? That's not from him. He's the giver of peace. He's the prince of peace. You don't have health, you don't have life, you don't have hope. And what is so cool about his form of government is that it works on laws. Laws that are realities, not political opinions. And last week I made the point that laws cannot be broken. They can be violated but not broken. And the easiest example that I feel like to explain God's laws is the natural law of gravity. It's... God's laws, his supernatural laws, are incredibly natural. They're, they're like supernatural. Like, oh yeah, it's like totally natural. They're way more natural than our natural laws. But the one thing the way that they're similar is, is you cannot break God's laws. You can violate them, but just like you can't, I can't break the law of gravity and just start floating on air unless the Lord enables me to do that. That would be superseding it, but in order to break it, it would have to break it, and it would no longer be functioning for anybody. It, we can't do that. But, Regulation laws that were given to mankind after the fall were a shadow that pointed to the one who created all the laws. And the purpose was to show two things. You can't comply. You're not good enough to satisfy the natural law. And even if you could, they're not enough to make you right with me. So you've got a problem you can't solve. And I love you so much. I'm the only one who can solve it. You need something that you can't do for yourself. It can only be provided for you, and it can only be received by you. You can't receive it for somebody else, and you can't, nobody else can do it for you except for me. That's the good news. And, and, and true to a, to a true and a good government, his laws are not partial. Somebody, One person doesn't get favoritism because of their parents or how much money they have or the zip code that they live in or the political party that they're involved with. The laws are equally applicable to everybody. So that is good news. The good news of the kingdom is not that, hey, somebody else is going to heaven when they die, but not you. The good news of the kingdom is not, oh, somebody else got healed and and healing was available for them and not you. The good news of the kingdom is not, oh, God loves somebody else and not you. The good news of the kingdom is it's here now and you can enter into this reality. So understanding his laws, how his government works, helps you know and understand him. You're not substituting intimacy with God by knowing how he works. You're not cheating on him. Intimacy, knowing and being known, is both the objective and the secret of God's laws. So when he speaks, it will never violate his words, his word that's already been spoken, and his laws. Now, it may violate your understanding of what he said. But it will he he's not psychotic. He's not schizophrenic. He's never gonna violate what he's already established. He's he he you can trust him. And understanding how his government works helps you say yes more quickly and easily, and helps you experience and remain in a place of intimacy. I had another experience this week where uh, I, I got to have coffee with a gentleman and we got into talking some about some of the things that I shared in my message last week. And I, and I told him, I said, hey, you, you might want to listen to it, but at the same time, what I ministered last week was coming out of me more easily and simply and purely in that conversation. And it was like, oh my gosh. That's another secret of the kingdom is that the word becomes flesh in you and then you, what so what we receive from from each other because we're all called to minister to one another will become something that we give out to the next person more freely and more easily than even when we did that's what that's another exclamation point that you don't need to be like me or anybody else and i don't have to be like you i love this what i love about our church is that we're we've got so much diversity and an and ability to go after god as a team so understanding his laws is not a substitute now His government is ruled by a king. This is not an elected person. And the goal of a government is to glorify a king. And the way that kingdoms, this particular type of government, expand is through a term we use, colonization. And the kingdom operates by his will, which is expressed through his word, which becomes his law. What does that mean? What does that matter to you? Well, when you hear that he said that this is a kingdom of kings, he's the king of kings, that can get really exciting or really boring. It's really boring if you think he's talking about the king of the kings of the natural realms, like the, the presidents and the premiers and all the great rulers and leaders. You know, we don't have a lot of people that call themselves kings. But he's not saying he's the king of King Charles and the king of, you know, the president of the United States. Or he's saying his kingdom is not made of, of, of subjects, but of kings. And if kings rule by the words that they speak, are you ruling by the words that you speak? If that's his law and you don't understand it, you're violating it but you're not breaking it. In other words, if you're not saying the if you're not saying what he's saying or you're not saying anything at all, then you're not ruling in the way that he wants you to rule. A secret of entering into this reality is learning to speak what he speaks not just through scripture memorization, but be, by being in tune and hearing what is on the Lord's heart at all times. And when, when fear and doubt try to crop up and, and to, to try to assert themselves against the knowledge of God, it doesn't even be, there's not even a flinch. You're like, no, the word of God says this, and I'm not putting up with that. And God told me this, and you have to leave in Jesus' name. It's speaking with that amount of authority. You, It feels crazy when you first get into it. If you've never done that before, if you come from a, if, if you, if that's, If you've never been around that, it starts to feel like you're, oh, you're talking to yourself. No, you're talking to the spirit realm. Kings rule by their words. And it's deception to think that you're going to walk in victory if you just remain silent all the time. Jesus was arrested and taken to court. He was in a handful of courtrooms before he ended up before Pilate. And he hardly said a word in any of those courtrooms. But when he stood before Pilate, he had a very governmental conversation. He said, the only reason why you have authority is because it's been given to you, and I could call a legion of angels to deliver myself right now. Well, what makes that court different from the other courts? The other courts were religious courts. Kings don't answer to religious leaders. Kings have conversations with kings. Government people have conversations with government people. If if the enemy can get you to think that he's about religion and that your goal is to be religious and try to follow rituals to earn some kind of status or whatever with him, he can keep you in a place of defeat. But he wants you to get to where you operate as a king, and you speak what the king of kings is saying in every situation. The parable of the sower, this isn't in my notes, but I feel led to share it. The parable of the sower goes out and sows the seed. And then the seed falls on different types of soil. And on one type of soil, It gets one result, which is nothing, another type of soil. It gets some results, and you can go read the the examples. It's all in Mark chapter 4. But then in another parable right after it, it gives the explanation of how that seed grows. The seed goes into the ground, and then there's a shoot, and then there's a stalk, and then the seed is mature once the head, there's seed in the head that's exactly like the seed that was sown. Okay, if the seed is the word, when is the word mature? And when can you reap the harvest? If God says to you, "By His stripes you are healed," that word goes into your heart. You get a little brand. You get a little upshoot. God loves me. I'm I'm healed. And then you get a stalk. You're like, you're starting to talk about it, or you're starting to think about it. You're starting to believe it more and more. But then when it comes down to persecution or Stress time? What's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Oh, maybe I'm not here. The enemy wants your agreement throughout the whole process. If you've ever been on the stand in a trial, it doesn't matter how many times you answer the question properly. If you answer it wrong once, they'll use that against you. So the seed gets planted, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing, and it's growing. But the plant is not mature until the seed in the head looks exactly like the seed that was sown. So when you're over here... When do you get your harvest and your victory? When you say what he said back here. And, and not through robotic repetition, by his stripes I am healed. No, it, it's when it, this is the mystery of faith. It is a process that you participate in. It's, it, it functions by the power of his word. So you're not responsible for making it happen but you can keep it from happening. But it's not based on your power. So if you will just engage the word, sow the word, sow the word, sow the word, sow the word. He will do the work that you could never do. And it, at one, and then the, the time will come when the seed, that the word that was spoken to you back there, will come out of your heart and you will know that you know that you know. I know that I know that I know that when I take my last breath, I'm going to be with my king forever. You cannot take that away from me. I know that I know that I know that who i am i know that i know that i know that god loves me there's things that have become so strong in my life that i could never doubt them no matter what you ever tried to do to me and that's that's the, that's the whole process of god's kingdom when we steward that little bit that he started with he will do the work all he needs us to do is to say yes just say yes Whew. Uh, i'm trying to condense this because there was there was there was so much um You've probably heard it said that God works in mysterious ways. Well, that mysterious has the same root word as mystery. And it's, there's two extremes that I see that we fall into with that concept of mysteriousness or the mysteries of God. One is that God is so mysterious, we never know what he's going to do. It's like, you know, God works in mysterious ways. I got hit by a car and the Lord's just working on me Somehow. But then there's another way where we can, we can have an intimate encounter with God and it can seem so mysterious. Or we can see that in someone else's life and we can go, oh wow, that was awesome. But I should never expect that to happen again or that's, that's not for me, that's for them. That, the thing about God's mysteries, the meaning of the word mystery that Jesus used is secret knowledge that can only be revealed. And in God's kingdom, his secrets are hidden from you to be revealed to you. So we should never fall into the ditch of, you know, oh, I can't know what God's doing. There's spiritual things going on and it doesn't involve me. <laughs> and we should never get into this place either where we, we see the intimacy of God, you know, infrequently or every once in a while or in someone else. We should expect intimacy. We should desire intimacy. We should know that it's available to us and for us. And, and God's not a teaser. He's not going to promote something or show you something and then withhold it from you. So, a couple more differences about kingdoms. Kings rule and reign by stewarding. In God's kingdom, we rule through serving. We're serving and stewarding his love. Our goal is to represent him wherever we go. We reign... By loving others, not by controlling others. And I said last week, stewardship precedes rulership. Rulership is never over others. So we are, you're called to be a ruler. You're called to, to have areas of your life where you are a force to be reckoned with, if you will. Sometimes you'll be known, sometimes you won't. I am not intimidated by my mechanic's abilities. I am so thankful that my mechanic is who he is and that he knows vehicles the way that he does because I can, I can benefit from his gifting and his authority in that realm. When I need help, I take my car to him, and I receive, and I'm blessed. But there's areas of my life where I'm like my mechanic. I know things that other people don't know, and I'm really good at them. And so my job is not to go out and try to promote myself in the sense of, like, I'm better than you. Or It's I learn how to go and, and serve, be that persistent person that's saying, hey, I've got something to show you. I've got something to show you. I've got something to show you. That guy that I was telling you about, three years. And he said, I gave, he basically said, I did this as a courtesy. He said, I wanted to write you off. I wanted to be able to say, nah, everything. He even told me, you need to change some of your vocabulary words because the words that you're using have a very negative meaning in my world. I was like, okay. It's, it's, I was like, wow, good insight there, good information. But if we don't, if we don't have these right, Concepts, we can fall victim to thinking about God's kingdom from an arrival perspective, and we can look at the works that were created for us to do, and we were created to do, as works of earning acceptance, we're earning intimacy, trying to work ourselves into a place of identity. Sabata talked a lot about identity. We give up our identity when we have these wrong ideas. And we can press into the right thing in the wrong way, and we can press into the wrong thing in the wrong way when we have these wrong ideas. So, why is the gospel of the kingdom good news? It's good news because it's now. It's good news because you can enter into its reality right now where you are. It's good news if you're in prison. It's good news if you're in suburban America or in a poor neighborhood or in a third world country or in an urban city in a communist country. It's good news to the prisoner. Hey, you're free to go. Jesus said, I came to preach freedom to the captives. If you're in prison, and if we just go down to the local prison and say, hey, y'all are free, does that change anything? But in God's kingdom, if you under, when you understand how it works, oh my gosh, he said I'm free, so I've got to walk. I've gotta, if, you're, if you're free and he's not a liar, that means you can go push open that door and walk out. But we, a lot of times the enemy tricks us into saying, well, I'm not free because you haven't picked me up and moved me. You haven't opened the door for me. You're, even if you open the door, I'm waiting for you to deliver me out. Well, the way that we get delivered is by hearing what he says to us and responding in faith. He'll tell you specific things to do. He'll tell you to go to that door. He'll tell you to walk down the hall. He'll tell you to get something out of your life or go put something into your life or ask for forgiveness. Good news to a sick person is, hey, you are healed by his stripes. You were healed. Good news to a foreigner is you can enter and become a citizen. Good news to a broke person is, hey, your debts are eliminated and your your lack is replaced. Your purpose has been restored. Good news to an orphan is you can join the family. It's good news. So I'm I'm, I'm going over these words because I want the gospel of the kingdom to become good news. It's exciting. This man that I was talking to who was having some really bad struggles in his marriage, in the past it would have intimidated me. Because I was like, you know, I want to feel sorry for him. I want to empathize. I I want to have some, you know, supernatural word. Let me just say, I want more for myself, and I believe that we should all want more for ourselves as a body of Christ. Flowing in the gifts of the Spirit is not for just one or some people. It's for all of us. But the good news about the kingdom is, is even if you're not mature in that, the kingdom works according to his laws, and all you got to do is share the good news. And so as I started telling this man, the good news is, and, I, and I, I said, you know what? God's kingdom works on laws. And once you understand those laws, you can rest in them. One of God's laws illustrated through his word is my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you've got a heavy burden or an unlight yoke, that's not from him. So the first thing you do is go, whoa, that's not from God. When, a lot of times when, when the Lord leads you, he leads you. When the enemy tries to lead you, he oppresses you. That's one of the first steps to know the difference between whether or not you're being led by the Lord or led by the enemy. And so as I began to just share some of these simple concepts, I wasn't moving in the way that I'd like to move eventually one day with supernatural, you know, you need to do this and reading his mail like a prophet. But I was just sharing the laws of the kingdom. And he left that meeting and that conversation refreshed. And then I got to pray with him. And it was like, it was like, wasn't anything about who I was or what I was doing. All I was doing was I was sharing the good news of the kingdom. It's good news because It reconnects you to the one who answers questions and solves problems and restores you to your role so you can walk in his realities. The model is for his word to become flesh in you so that others can taste and see that the Lord is good. And the process can be repeated again and again and again and again and again. It's not based on your education or how good you are or how you compare or contrast with somebody else. So if you're listening online or you're in this room, How do you take some first steps or next steps? First off, if you're not born again, the first step is to receive Jesus. You don't have to do anything else except that's your first step. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Religion, one of the ways you can identify religion really quickly is an obsession with heaven over intimacy with the Father. Because all religions are arguing and debating about what the next life looks like and how to get there. Jesus didn't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to heaven except through me which is true because the Father's in heaven, but that's not what he said. You can come to the Father now. You don't have to wait to die your physical death to be able to have a relationship with the Father. If you're not baptized with the Holy Spirit and you don't have the, gift of, you don't have the evidence of speaking in other tongues, you don't need to feel condemned, but you also not feel, you ought to not feel complacent and feel like it doesn't involve or interest you. The disciples who, were, who received it in a dramatic fashion were in a place of extreme expectation. They were in a place of, okay, Lord, you said to be here, and we don't know what it's going to look like, but they were waiting. When Paul went and ministered to some some believers that were far away from there, they said, we haven't even heard about that. So they had no expectation. But once he ministered to them, then they came to a place of expectation. Don't judge your experience by anyone else. I received my gift of of speaking in other tongues in a way totally different than my roommate and my brother and so many other people. But the point is God has the same thing for everybody. If, you're, if the Lord has highlighted or pinpointed any wrong ideas or thoughts or burdens in your life today, if you have a need, start today. Start now. Respond to what you've heard. That's the secret. The disciples asked what Jesus meant after he said something. The crowds just listened and walked away. The secret to having what Jesus has for you is once he presents it to you, is to go chew on it, swallow it, take a bite. What does that mean, Lord? What does that mean to me? What do I do with that? How, how, how do I steward this? How do I walk in this? How can I take the next step? If you don't, have, if you don't know what else to do, if nothing else, just simply express, practice using your mouth, and, and share with someone what the Lord is, is doing in your life, and, possi- and, and ask for prayer maybe. Just do some. Just find some way to respond. You don't to receive Jesus. You don't need to come down here physically. If you did, let's let's just pretend that that was the way that you received salvation. Well, then, if you're listening online and you can't get here physically today because you don't have a DeLorean to time travel like in Back to the Future, then you are out of luck. It's not about a physical location. Just write the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not based on a physical location. It is simply. Hear what the word has said to you and respond and say, yes, I want that, Lord. Whatever it looks like, I don't care what it looks like. Are you willing to lay down your culture, your traditions, your comfort zones, your comfort levels? Are you willing? Is, it, is, it, is what he said to you become more valuable than everything else to you that's been a reality up in your life up until that point? Our goal is just to say yes to him every day and to, be, and to get into a place of where What he says and has said to us becomes such a reality that there's no differentiation between us saying it and him saying it. Would y'all please stand? Last week we had an awesome time of prayer and ministry and I'm not into tradition or formulas. I'm not into copying or trying to maintain. But what I do want to, to get across and I want to instigate and suggest, and get people thinking about, is that no matter how mature, or how, how strong you feel in the Lord, or how weak you feel in the Lord, how educated, or how ignorant you feel, God has got more, and better for you, and, it, and that's not because you're sorry, it's because he's awesome, and he is limitless, so no matter if you receive everything that God has for you today, tomorrow morning, it starts over, he's got more, His mercies are new every morning. So this is not about us. This is not about us trying to get over what we did this week or what we did 20 years ago or anything like that. It's literally just hearing what he's saying to us and saying yes. So if, again, I'm at a place where I don't know where to go, but I want us as a church to be willing to go wherever he wants us to go. Father, we say yes to you by faith. It's not comfortable when we don't know how to, when we feel or think that we don't know what to do. It's not comfortable to feel foolish. It's not comfortable to be like a child. But yet you said that's the secret is to be like a, little, a child. Father, we say yes to you. We want to say yes to you. Show us the ways that we haven't said yes and that we don't even know that we're not saying yes or that we're, we don't even know that we're saying no. Let your word become flesh in us. Teach and help us to become part of that process. If there's a word that needs to be spoken, if somebody has a word like John did last week, let it come forward. If someone has a special need that needs prayer, come forward. Someone will pray with you. We want to say yes and be willing to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable at any given moment, whether we're in a business meeting or a grocery store. We don't want to live by formulas and traditions. We're not not following patterns, God. We're following you. We see that you move in patterns, God, but you're not defined by them. We see your laws, but we also see, Father God, that you supersede and you teach us how to live in all of your reality. We want the reality of healing and health and forgiveness and peace and joy. Everything that is in heaven on earth now. We ask you to deliver us from a rival theology that keeps moving the goalpost down the field and creating an objective that can never be satisfied.